0: Uh, Good morning, everybody. Um, I hope you're well today, and thank you for being here. It is not as cold as it was last week. Still pretty cold, i got to say. As a native-born Texan, still pretty cold. Not a fan. So uh, thank you for being here. Uh, I know you could be anywhere, most particularly on a day like this, in your bed, under covers. Um, However, uh, you chose to get up, get dressed, and hopefully partake in a warm shower, uh, and, and to be here, and so thank you for that. I think most all of you in this room know me, uh, but for those that may watch later or listen later, my name is Josh, uh, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge. And today, like most Sundays, I want to start with a little bit of a story, but it's more of a quote. Um, but I want to first, before we get into that quote, ask a simple question, which is Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be a president's son or daughter? Now, Maybe not you. Maybe you're like—that's a really weird question. Um, however, as uh, a bit of a history buff, you know, there's that that meme from Spider-Man where Willem Dafoe was like, "I'm something of a scientist myself." I like to think uh, that my version of that meme is, "I'm something of a historian myself," because uh, as a history buff, I really, really uh, like history. I really enjoy, particularly, early American history, and so. Uh, If you ever wanted to know what my favorite or who my favorite president was, not that he was necessarily always the best president, but my favorite president was the sixth president of these United States of America, who is what? (laughs) Someone said Abe Lincoln, and that was (laughs) way off my, (laughs) close to a couple hundred years. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, okay, I'm bringing it back in. Not a couple hundred years, but it was was by, by a good amount. John Quincy Adams, that is correct. Who was the son of the second president, John Adams. Just having that have been my favorite president, it naturally invoked early in my life this question of what would it have been like to be the president's son and to feel like you had sort of this path laid out for you in a lot of ways to be president as well. And the thing is, we didn't really got to figure that out because John Quincy Adams' son, uh, Fr- Charles Francis Adams, um, actually wrote this stuff down while exploring his family history, and I want to read what he wrote about the Adams presidential family. He wrote this: "Even the first famous Adams generation children of second the children of second President John Adams uh, had more than its share of black sheep. John and Abigail's eldest child, Abigail Adams, married uh, a wastrel, which in in our basically means like a loser Um, and at her death left her children to the care of John and Abigail Adams her parents their son Charles married the sister of his spendthrift brother-in-law and dissipated family funds died of alcoholism and left his widow to care for his parents their son Thomas Boyleson Um, also became an alcoholic, again, bequeathing his children to the care of the Adams family. Though John Quincy, that was Charles Francis' father, turned out well, he and his unhappy wife, Louisa, hardly went unscathed. Their son was an alcoholic and committed suicide at the age of 31. Their next son was expelled from college, failed in business, and died of an alcohol-related illness. Only their youngest son, Charles Francis, who happens to be writing this, reacted against the family pattern by his exemplary sobriety. Uh, (laughs) I gotta say, that's quite funny. That's quite... uh, But you know what? If, If you're stacked up against that, then I mean... Give yourself a pat on the back. His exemplary sobriety, his prudence in business, and fervent dedication to his wife and children. He spent years writing his biography and editing the words of his grandfather, John Adams, but he concluded the history of my family uh, is not a pleasant one to remember. Uh, It is one of great triumphs in the world, uh, but of deep groans within. One of extraordinary brilliance and deep corroding mortification. Um, it is one of the great triumphs of the world, but of deep groans within, extraordinary brilliancy, uh, and deep corroding mortification. I remember reading a biography of the Adams family when I was a teenager, and, and that stood out to me how incredibly revered this family seemed to be, yet how consistently their family, their children particularly, tended to go wayward and really suffered through huge sections of their life. And I'm not sure if every presidential family is that way. I don't want you looking at the kids of every president like, that poor child. Or I, don't, not, I don't know if that's how every single family of a president operates, but I do know um, that in the book of Malachi, right, that we're given a vision of family that is c- almost completely contradictory to that vision. And, and when I say family, I mean two things. I mean, one, the unit of family that we think of when we say family mother, father, kids, but also this vision of spiritual family, people that share uh, their family heritage through their heavenly father, through God. And here's the thing. What we're going to see today is that while the conduct of God's family toward one another may at times fail, and we may actually end up having narratives not completely unlike Right, the Adams family, and I—I I, I know that you're probably giggling, thinking of large monsters. Don't do that. Just think of the Adams family as presidents. Uh, and and while I hope that you don't have scathing generations of alcoholism in your family, and if you do, I want to pray against that alongside of you for you. I mean, the the conduct of debauchery, the conduct of giving ourselves to things that we hope make us feel whole, a feeling pressure that we can't quite avoid, and feeling the feelings of disappointment when we look at those who have come before us and have this weighty sense that we've not lived up to their expectations. While a lot of those things can seemingly overlap, and while we tend to look at those grand figures in our own lives... Uh, as fathers or grandfathers or patriarchs and matriarchs of some kind and tend to weigh our disappointment against them. In God's family, it is actually God's own glory as our Father that tends to to drive our love and affection and honoring of him, and that actually leads us to a successful, safe, and beautiful family. It's it's actually kind of contradictory to what we see in the story of a president's family. That while the weight of the presidency and the weight of being an early founding father seem to actually pin down generations of Adams, it's actually in the glory and beauty of our heavenly father that our family in a spiritual sense actually thrives. And so what I want to do today is I want to just continue on in, in Malachi, but I want to help us see how God's love, and this is particularly what's going to happen here, how God's love gives way to a vision of God's family. Uh, and we're going to do that by going, to, going ahead and getting started uh, by reading the entirety of what we're going to cover today, which is Malachi 10 through 16. And I want to invite you to stand with me uh, in honor and in respect for God's word, this, this, this word that we believe is holy and that a lot of us hold very dear. At the end of that reading, I'm going to go ahead and invite you uh, to, to respond to me after I say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, thanks be to God if you would like to. Uh, but let's go ahead and get started now by starting in Malachi 2. 10 through 16. It's on the board if you want to read it with me. Verse 10 starts like this Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Did make, didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. Verse 16 concludes, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garments with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you sit down. Let's, let's get to business. There's a lot going on here, and I want to get to it. So short, short question to kind of summarize what you're feeling and what I'm feeling, which is what the heck's happening here? lot going on and a lot of language is actually quite confusing. On face value, it's understandable if you would look at this and assume that you've dropped into an awkward conversation between a parent and their children. And you know those exact conversations I'm talking about, right? Where there's like, there's some scolding going on, a little yelling. You could tell some people are quite miffed and you just don't know what to do. You're just looking forward. You're looking at your phone. You don't know what to do with your hands. You're like, uh, you don't want to be like, good job. You don't want to be like, so sorry. You don't know really what to say you'd be like, man, that's hard. And they'll be like, God, it's fine. And it's like, golly, I keep getting this wrong, dude. Like, you don't know what to do. And they're awkward moments, right? We've all been in that moment. If you have friends with kids, you know that maybe more than some. But what God seems to be scolding his kids about for us as 21st century Americans, uh, it seems so foreign. And and hear me, I I understand why this can be challenging. Because in a culture where cross-cultural marriage is celebrated, We see it celebrated all the time, right? And where divorce is high and it seems so normal and expected in marriages so often, right? The God angry about divorce and what seems to be the marriage of foreigners feels like an out-of-touch and archaic remnant of the past, and no wonder our culture right, seems to be moving beyond the Bible and beyond the idea of Christianity, if we got a God who seems to be against cross-cultural marriage, which for all intents and purposes, even in a church like ours, we would really celebrate, right? Because we see, I mean, I'm, I descend from Native Americans, and my wife does not. I just let y'all know my, y'all y'all, y'all not know my wife. No, her people came on one of them boats that came early on in America, all right? So, uh, you know, so we celebrate that still, And we think it's beautiful. So no wonder our culture seems to be moving on when it seems like that's what's being focused on here. And let me tell you, um, in a book of... In terms of Malachi, that that so much focuses on priests, I think it's fitting for me to tell you as a shepherd in this community that it is precisely lazy interpretations like that that have damaged the church's reputation. And as a result, oftentimes, in the eyes of outsiders, in the eyes of unbelievers, damage the reputation of God. Because if I'm being honest, that is absolutely not what's happening here. What's happening here is not God being like, I'm trying to get my racist on, and y'all out here marrying foreigners. That's not what he's doing. That's not what's happening. When we dive a little deeper, we see that there are two major concerns that Malachi, and therefore God speaking through Malachi, really wants to address. And the first is this, a love for God's people. In other words, a love for our brothers and our sisters in the faith. That's the big concern that he's after. And the second actually is related to the first. The second is our vision of God as our father and how that impacts our vision of a spiritual family. Those are the two things that are at the heart of this passage. The only thing is we have to go into the passage, try to put ourselves in the world of Malachi to actually understand how that's the point in the midst of talking about foreign wives and divorce. Now, let's get started today talking about love for God's family, right? Throughout the Bible, God repeatedly establishes himself, for himself, I should say, a family. Everybody say family. All right, we're going to do it again because I'm a little weak. All right, everybody say family. Family. All right, that was much better. So whether you got Abraham in the Old Testament working through into the nation of Israel or whether you come to the church in the New Testament, right, the vision that God has for the earth is that he would establish a family and he seeks to establish a family that he can love. And there's a natural theological reality to that. Theological just means a a teaching about God, right? That God is love. God does not lack love. I don't know what traditions you come from, but in the tradition you're a part of here, the refuge tradition, we'll call it for the moment, right? We don't believe that God in the beginning lacks anything. He's not in eternity, before all creation, before all time, thinking to himself, I'm lonely. I really need Josh. Because trust me, I'm, I'm a letdown big time if that's the case, right? But, but rather, we serve a God that exists perfectly, and is full of love. And therefore, everything he creates is not lacking or needing something from the creation, but he creates out of an abundance of love, hoping and expecting to pour out his love on the creation itself. That's the nature of why God is created. He created to love his creation. That's the point. And so when we look at, hold on, what, what, where am I at these notes real quick, hold on. Right, right, right. As a result, when he creates, through the story of creation, he's creating a family for himself. And this is precisely why God starts here in Malachi 2, uh, verse 10, with, and you can put it up on the board, verse 12. Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? In other words, aren't we a family? Aren't we a spiritual family? Is that not what we are? Have you forgotten that? And then he continues, with why that's so important? If so, then why do we treat each other treacherously? AKA, why do we treat each other poorly? Why do we hurt one another? And profane the covenant of our ancestors? AKA, why do we make light or turn our back on what makes us family? Have you ever seen, y'all, just so you know, there's lots of talks about fathering and parenting this week. So you're going to hear a ton about my kids. Um, My son has, he's four. My oldest son, he has outbursts. The outbursts can range in severity. But one of his favorite things uh, is to be like, you're a bad dad. And then he's like, you know what? You're not my dad anymore. You're the worst dad of all time. And then if, if we press him on it, right, if we're like, I'm going to set the holiness aside, and I'm going to engage the boy on a carnal level right now. And you start pressing back like, oh, you, want, oh, you don't want me to be a dad? Oh, you know what it feels like? You don't want to be a part of our family? I don't want to be a part of our family. And it's like, ah, right? It gets out of hand. But I think what's unique about that is that it, it, it does in some way offer insight to what's happening here. To be a part of God's family, right, there is a, a joining of one to the one who makes a family. That is God. And, and the idea of them taking lightly or making profane the covenant, that is the agreement, what makes them family, is in essence to say that there are people within this family who have treated each other treacherously, and that has happened as a result of them turning their back on the father that actually makes them a family. And that, that's a concern, right? And for, for Malachi, he, he sees them going, Why? How are we doing these things? Well, verse 11 explains, right? Verse 11 continues, they have married, how have they done this? They have married daughters of a foreign God. And we need to pause here, right? Because this is where things get tricky for our 21st century eyes and mind, right? It's not because they married foreign women. I think that's what we need to, to get out of. The Bible's not over here being like, hey, if you ain't Jewish, you ain't special. Therefore, don't marry not Jewish women, as though there is some sort of ethnic priority placed on this specific people ethnically, naturally, right, biologically. In fact, marrying foreign foreign women and bringing them into the community of faith was not uncommon in Hebrew culture. If you just go back and look at the fact that something like Ruth and Naomi, for those of you that know this story, where Naomi's sons marry foreign women, but those foreign women come and adopt the faith of the family, which is to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. And and a foreigner who clings, specifically Ruth in this situation, becomes a foreigner who clings to God and clings to her mother. And therefore, even after Naomi's son passes, right, the daughter-in-law, Naomi, still sticks with Ruth and stays faithful to God. This is not uncommon in their culture. It's actually pretty normal. There's a space for this and a place for this. The wording here is not even actually foreign women right? But daughters of another God. And this paints a very important picture when it comes to what's actually happening and how it impacts the idea of loving one another, right? What this paints is a picture that they married women who were actively participating in the faith of another God. That they were literally saying, no, I, I, don't, I don't believe in your God. We're husband and wife, but I don't believe in your God. I believe in this God. And I actively, it's not like a cultural association either. I, I actively practice my faith. It means something to me. I'm a daughter of my God. And here is where God's vision for his family starts to unfold and be built out from Malachi. Because what we instantaneously start to learn from this section is this, that by hurting one in the body, everyone is hurt. And I want you to, if you're writing stuff down, that's, you need to write that down. And if you're not writing it down, you better commit that bad boy to memory. Hurting one of the body, I got, I got, I got. I'm getting it. All right. Hurting one of the body hurts everyone in the body. In marrying women devoted to another faith, the entire community was affected. Right, While these Hebrew men saw themselves as individuals, as acting autonomously and only impacting their own spiritual life by marrying women who were particularly leading them away from faith in Yahweh and toward faith in another God, Malachi draws their attention to the fact that they have one father, that they are a part of a family. They're not simply individuals, but a collection of sons and daughters. That's their identity now. That's a part of who they are. And and I want to stop here again because, friend, I, I, I think this should speak to you and it should speak to me because when you have been adopted into the spiritual family of God, here's a reality you have to face. You are no longer an individual. You no longer function solely as an individual. You're a part of a family, of a spiritual family, where the vision of the New Testament for us, is to now see one another that meet in this cafeteria with half blue and half white walls, that now in this group of people, we see individuals that are closer to us than our own siblings by blood, than our own parents by blood. Why, how, how does that make sense? Similar to Malachi, because these individuals in this room draw you to the priority and the most important thing in the universe. Even when your blood siblings or your blood parents fail to do so, you have a family of people that are closer than biological blood because this community of people will always point you to a perfect heavenly father that loves you and cares for you. So even when your biological family fails you, you have a father that will never fail you. And the individuals in this room always remind you of that. And the thing is that does, it carries responsibilities. It carries responsibilities that we can see as being inconvenient. I'm sure reading this verse and hearing Malachi talk like this would have made some guys who had married some gals from a different religion be like, why has it got to be like that? Why has it got to be all that? I don't want me feeling like I'm responsible for this and that person. How come it can't just be me making the decision? Yes, I understand it comes with responsibilities, but the thing is it comes with promises, too. It comes with promises, Promises of people that are close to you, and people that will care for you, and people that will have your back, and people that will fight for you, and people that will be there when everyone else seems to disappear. The the other day, I was speaking to my dad, and uh, he's in good health, but uh, he's getting getting a little advanced in years, if you know what I'm saying. <clears throat> and considering some situations with my aunt being sick recently. Um, we started to talk about reaching the end of life and what that's going to look like. And here's the thing, I'm an only child. I don't have any blood siblings. But it was such a comfort to my heart when my dad looked at me and he said, I'm not worried about you when I die. Because the way you live your life, you'll always have brothers around you. You'll always have people to take care of you. No matter what phase of life you're going through. You'll have people that are there and people that you are there for. And I don't think you'll ever be alone. What a promise. What a good gift from a good father. That even when it feels like you are alone, when it feels like you've lost everyone that maybe you've once called friend, or if you've lost people in your family, you feel like you've been a disappointment in your father or your mother, that they don't see you for who you are and you feel distant from them, that, that your heavenly Father has provided a family where you will have a brother, you will have a sister, you will have a mother, you will have a father, you will have a friend all of your days. And that we're caught. Now, like families, I just said that the family of God ain't always got it together. So you're going to get hurt in them relationships just like you do in normal relationships. That's because your, your brothers and sisters are still people. They're still humans. They're still going to forget or get caught up in their own lives. But this is a beautiful promise, friend. Right? It, it, it paints a picture of people that are committed to each other in ways that really go beyond the scope of what our culture usually expects. Josh Allen is right there helping us. I've been playing text tag with that man for probably about 10, 11 days trying to figure out a night where we could get together. I'm glad to say tonight we're supposed to get together. So barring all catast- catastrophes, <laughs> catastrophes uh, going down in my life or his life, I'm going to see that man tonight. He got two kids, and that man in his one job got about 1.75 jobs. I got three kids, and my job is y'all. So I mean, it has its moments, you know. I'm just playing. I'm just kidding. I love y'all. I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. Well, we're busy individuals, but that that moment of going, "Hey, what about this day? I can't this day. What about this day? I can't that day. What about this day? I can't that day. Can't that day. But what about this day?" And I don't mean that was one conversation. I mean it was like, "Send." Did I get leave? Did I get left on red? And then randomly pop back in like, "What about Saturday?" Four days later, actually it was yesterday, it was on Saturday that I hit him back and I was like, so I take your Saturday and I counter offer tomorrow night, right? That commitment's powerful, friends. It seems small, but I promise you when when that commitment is scaled toward a community of people that become a family and it feels like you're alone, but you have people that are committed to you and, and being there for you and loving you, man, that's powerful. That's beautiful. And call me crazy, but like I believe this. Like, some of y'all be like, man, that man is a little affectionate. I'd be, like, trying, like, I told Joe the other day, like, I'd be wanting to touch y'all in an an appropriate way, right? Not in an inappropriate way, in an appropriate way. Because, like, I believe this. Like, I believe that there is a God. And that he sent his son to make me a part of a family And that when I come into a room like this, I see you and that you're that family. And so, and it may be a blessing in some ways that I'm an only child because I I see you as my brothers and sisters. So I want to, like, grab your shoulder and I want to hug you. And I want to care for you because you are mine and I'm yours. Like, I believe that this is true. This is the promise we have in the gospel of a spiritual family and and, and God invites us, man, don't, don't be distant from this family, right? In, engage in it. Entrench yourself in it. Develop deep relationships in it. Make yourself vulnerable in it. You will have some bumps and bruises along the way, but you'll also have some beautiful promised moments in it as well. But here's the thing. As a result of this, God reminds them, again, that to hurt one in the family is to hurt the family at large. And that includes hurting yourself. Right. And while it may seem to us that that what we do is often inconsequential, God takes wounding a member of his family very seriously. Right. We see how serious this is taken, actually, in the New Testament. Can someone give me uh, something to blow my nose with? Because if not, you're going to just keep hearing me talk and then like sniff, talk, sniff, talk, sniff. It's going to get old after. It's already old for me. It's going to get old for you soon. We see how serious that's taken in the New Testament writings of Paul. Right in discussing sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6 Paul says this, and, I, and I'm going to come to the board because I want you to track with what's going on here it's actually really hard to see in English but once you understand what it's saying in its original context, its original language it's actually really, really powerful right, so he starts out and we, we've heard this, thank you so much I appreciate that I to grab them, uh, them brown ones that like are basically cardboard this is much better Allergies and crying don't mix. So verse 10, I mean, verse 18 in chapter 6 starts like this. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Uh, If we continue on to 19, and this is where it starts getting tricky. Verse 19 says, don't you, singular, know that your singular body is a temple, singular of the Holy Spirit who is in you, again singular, whom you have from God. You are not your own, you've been purchased with a price. That's what the next, uh, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Now that may paint the picture that hey, God really values your conduct. He really values the way you act, And that's because he's bought you. You're his son. You're his daughter. It's important to him. And so you as an individual, and autonomously, and X, Y, and Z, you need to really concern yourself with yourself. However, this is not the only time this language is used. Three chapters earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul actually says this. It's going to be eerily familiar. Don't you, but this time plural, yourselves know that you plural are God's temple, and that the Spirit of God lives in you, plural. In other words, don't you all yourselves, you can go back to that one, um, don't you all yourselves know that you all are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you all? following verse continues on. If anyone destroys God's temple, that's you all. God will destroy him. For God's temple, you all, is holy, and that is what you all are. Now, why all the you alls and the singulars and the plurals? Why? Why do I got to go over there and make a hoopla scene? Because here's the thing, friend, and I want you to really focus on what I'm about to say. To hurt one of God's family is to hurt the entire family. And as much as God loves you, I, I, I need and want you to remember that God loves your brothers and sisters as much. I say this lovingly, not because I don't think you are amazing, but because it is unhealthy to think this way. You are not the main character of this story. God did not choose you as his son or as his daughter and say, now the story's about you, and anyone and everyone that does anything to you, I'm gonna get onto them. But when you do something, don't worry, I got your back, you're the main character, and the protagonist, he never dies. In this story, the protagonist does never die, but the protagonist is someone completely different. The protagonist is God, making for himself a family and a community of people that he loves equally. God has loved you, but he's also loved your brothers and sisters. And whether through spiritual deception or lying or misguidance or divorce or um, ungodly influences like the priests in Malachi's day or Whether we hurt each other through hurtful words of gossip, childish arguing, angry outbursts, or just failing to live up to the promises we've made to one another, right? When God's children are hurt and pained, God's heart is kindled with compassion for the victim and anger towards the culprit, even if the culprit is another one of his children. And I need you to realize what I'm saying. God has loved us, and he does love us and he will always love us. We are his children. You're his son or his daughter. You will be his son or his daughter. You always will be, right? But God loves a community of people as his people equally. And therefore, when one person in his community is hurt, it pains him. It hurts him. Because he's holy and because he's a good father, it angers him when I see my kids get trounced on the playground, outwardly, I'm gonna be like, it's okay, he's all right. But any parent in here knows, internally, you're like, I hope that kid trips, right? You're like, there's something happens in you, right? You get a little angry, because you love your children. God loves you except way more than that. He loves the others who are his children just like that. And so even when it's another one of his children that actually does the hurting, he's still angry at that person. So then you're gonna hear some stories about my kids and you finna hear them. Um, we've been trying to make this idea of family values at our house. And so we got together, we sat down, we kind of covered with our kids like, this is who we are, right? We're respectful, we listen, we're patient, um, we don't quit, right? We try our best. That's one. The other thing we did is that we said, we work as a team. Because a good team doesn't work in what we call silos. right? What working in silos means is that oftentimes, and you've been a part of a team like this and you've been like, I hate this team, is you have people that are like, this is my role, this is what I do, this is all that I do. You handle yours, I'll handle mine. And if you don't handle yours, that's on you, but I'm gonna get mine done. If you ever worked on a team like that, you know it's horrible, because it's kind of cutthroat. Like, no one really has your back, right? If you fail and everyone else succeeds, you know that other team members are just gonna be like, that was on you. But when a good team works together and doesn't work in silos, then they know, hey, if I get everything done, I'm gonna make myself available to the rest of my team to fill in the gaps where needed. So maybe this is not my responsibility, maybe it's not my job, but it is my family, it is my team. So maybe it's not my job, but if my team, my family needs it, then I do it. This is really helpful in a family when you got three kids and they all be making messes and you're like, hey, bro, we're a family. We're a team. Just clean out the living room, all right? I don't care if you made the mess or not. But I got to say that uh, my son, my oldest son, Jude, he, he struggles with this concept. He'll constantly be like, but that's not fair. And I'm like, bro, you don't know what fair is, first off. You just told me you do not want me to be with your dad about eight minutes ago. So it doesn't seem fair that I'm still your dad after you've been telling me I ain't your dad about 87 times today. day. Right, he struggles with it. But the thing is, when he tends to, to hurt his sister, it still frustrates me. When he tends to disrespect his sister, it still frustrates me. Right? When, when we're meant to be a team and he's not pulling his weight but in fact, at times he's hurting his family. It frustrates everybody in the family and it impacts all of us, right? That, that's the reality. And the thing is in your life, right, when, when you hurt even yourself, you hurt the whole team. You hurt the whole family. And it's for two reasons. First, obviously God loves you and he cares for you. But the other thing is that the community needs you. You, you have gifts. I don't care whether you're far from God. I don't care whether you're close to God. I don't care whether you prayed this morning or whether you didn't. Romans says that the gifts of God are irrevocable. He doesn't take them back. Therefore, whether you can sit here and be like I'm the best Christian in the world or you can say, man, I'm not even sure if I'm a Christian. The reality is God has given you gifts and he's given you gifts to bless others. And so when you hurt yourself spiritually, when you remove yourself from the game, when you withdraw from the family, the family gets hurt because the family needs you you are a critical part of the family. We, write, we have it right over there that our goal as a church is to connect with God, to grow with family, and to serve the city. We think that it, it is pan, like paramount to the Christian faith that you grow with family, why? Because God is, the vision we have of God is in essence equal to the, to the like mosaic we have of people around us, the gifts that you have, the character that you have, the personality that you have. It plugs in a vision that creates a bigger vision. It, it plugs in a hole that creates a bigger vision of who God is in the lives of the people around you. And so when you hurt, even if you hurt yourself, right, even if it's, if it's the idea of you willingly giving into sin or you willingly doing X, Y, and Z, the whole community of faith is hurt. The whole community of faith is hurt because you're important. now here's the thing, when it comes to loving God's people, this isn't where this stops. Actually, it continues on for one more section Uh, in verse 13. uh, God doesn't just stop with the idea of marrying foreign women or marrying uh, daughters of other gods more accurately, but he continues on in verse 13 to bring up another issue related to kind of the same fundamental idea. In Malachi 2, starting in 13, uh, Malachi continues on, this is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them the portion uh, of spirit? With this, uh, what is the one seeking godly offspring? So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. Now, what's happening here, right? On a simple level, I'm just going to level with you. God deeply despises divorce. I'm not gonna beat around that. I'm not gonna tell you otherwise. That doesn't mean that God despises you if you've been divorced or if you are in the middle of divorce. That's not what this is saying. What it is saying is that the idea of marriage and the covenant of marriage is one in which there's not just witnesses in the wedding. But if you ever been to a wedding and they say, we gather here before these witnesses and before God, that God himself is the witness to the marriage, meaning that he is, he is the one that, that the marriage almost is, is built on. He appeals to it and says, this is a blessed thing. This is a good thing. And the reality is God hates it when, when people are divorced. Now, the Bible makes provisions for some of this. And so I'm not telling you that if you're divorced now that you're wrong or you need to go and get married to that person again. I'm not saying that. That's a whole other subject that we're not covering right now. What I am saying is that on the face, God is again looking and going, I as a father, I as your father, and as the father of the woman that you've divorced, because these are Hebrew, Israel-like women that are getting divorced. He's saying, you have treated them treachery. And this, this actually, man, this We don't have time to go into all of it, but man, there's some really powerful language used here. People have written some incredible things about this section of text when it comes to the idea of the wife of your youth, and particularly when it comes to the idea of someone's garments being covered in violence. If you go back again to Ruth and Boaz, um, that when Boaz claimed Ruth as his wife in their culture, they would lay a garment over the woman, and that would communicate in a ceremonial way, that's gonna be my wife. And, and here Malachi says, the garment that you've laid as a claim to a wife, and it's covered in violence. It's covered in debauchery. In essence, he's painting a picture that the community and family of faith have left. a a trail of violence and tears. There's even been some interpreters that have believed the tears of the altar are not actually the tears of the individual making sacrifices, but those tears that wet the altar of God in this sacrificial system are the tears of women who are crying because they've been left behind in a culture that now is seeking a new thing uh, in, in these other women from foreign religions. And there's some powerful things happening here. We can't get into all of them today, but I want you to know that like a couple of points is that God deeply cares for and he is jealous for and protective of any individual. In this case, it's women and it's wives because in this culture, women were particularly vulnerable. But anyone who is a marginalized, defenseless, right, hurting person, I want you to know that when you read the words of this verse that say there are tears and there's groaning, you've been violent, the promises you've made are faulty, they're bankrupt, and I, don't, I reject your offerings on behalf of those that you've left in need, that that's the heart of God toward every marginalized person in the world today. He, that is actual, so when you see injustice happening, it should fill your heart with jealousy as it does with God. It should, it should lead you to desire justice as God desires justice. It may even require you speaking um, and really taking actions against those that are oppressing individuals, just like God takes a step to say, I'm going to accept your offerings right now because you're leaving, you're leaving a trail of tears and anguish behind you. It may even require some measure of action in your life to express a dissatisfaction with the injustice. That's why in our church, I'm not going to, if there's some random act of injustice that happens and you're out there marching, I ain't going to look at you and be like, what are you doing? We don't do that. No, we do that. We do that. Why? Because God values justice. He looks at the oppressed and he cares for them. He looks at the hurting, and he is their refuge, and he is their strength. Even if the individual's lives don't always line up with our beliefs, that's not, again, we talked about this one time last year, that people's faith is not the gauge on what makes them valuable, valuable in God's kingdom, that they're made in God's image is what makes them valuable in God's kingdom. And so we value this idea of justice, and God cares for individuals that are oppressed and individuals that have been hurt. Now, kind of close in here. Why is all this happening? Why is all this going down? Why is the community of faith, one fractured and treating each other treacherously, right? Being deceitful, falling away from God and pursuing other faiths, kind of disrupting the vision of family that God has given them in divorce. What is happening here? From Malachi's perspective, and honestly some of my perspective looking at the world we live in today as well, right, a huge part if not the main part of why it's happening is because the individuals who are participating in this have lost their vision for God as our, not just my, but our Father. Often we forget to love each other as we're one because we've neglected it best and forgotten at worst, the father that makes us one. What makes a sister different than a stranger? What makes a brother different than a friend? Right? It's the lineage of where we come from. It's a shared father, a shared family. Understanding God's love for you and loving Him in return is not just for you, it's for the world around you. When we understand the Father's burden for us, it helps us understand His burden for others. And here's the thing, as we go out and love others and we see God's deep love for them, it likewise reminds us of God's deep love for us. It's like an incredible cycle of reinforcing love once we understand that we're a part of a family that's meant to love and serve one another. And as we see the father's love, oh, sorry. Uh, the other day, I was, I was again uh, talking to my son, Jude. Uh, Jude's got a lot of cameos today, but he's going to have some cameos through the course of his life, to be fair. Um, he got on to assist sister about something. It wasn't a huge deal, but I had had a really long day that day, if I'm being, being honest with you. I had a hard day. And um, I was looking at him, and I tried all the natural things that, that kind of I do like I try to give him some consequences, trying to give him some guidance. Well, nothing helping. And finally, it wasn't a tactic, though it might be now. Uh, It was more of a response. And the response was simply to the difficulty of the day, the difficulty of that moment, I started crying. And uh, I looked at him in my tears and just said, "'Dude, I love you, and I love your sister. "'I love both of you, and I want to protect y'all, "'and it hurts me deeply when you hurt each other.'" And so Jude, I'm not just getting on to you. Man, I love you, I love her. And I want both of you to be okay. And I don't know if it was the speech or the tears. Let's be honest. It was probably the tears. And um, thank God my son's not a psycho because he came over and was like, okay. Okay, I'm sorry. And I was like, but that's the first time you said I'm sorry in nine, three hours, brother. That was, I thank God. Uh, he gave me a hug. He's like, okay, I'm sorry. I'll tell Leah I'm sorry. He goes, he tells his sister Sorry. And like I said, I don't know if my son's responding to the truth of him being a part of a family or if he's just seeing his dad cry. But it did make me think of how beautiful it is when we understand that the love we have for one another and how God is calling us to treat one another is rooted in the overwhelming love of God toward us as a family. That you are part of something beautiful here because God didn't come here to see you. God came here to see us. And that together, in a community of faith, God dwells and you see him and he works and he shares his love, not just for you, but for others. And it reminds you of his love for you and you share his love for others to other people. And then it builds a community with a vision of who God is that then goes out and starts to change the world by what? Shaping communities and cities by the love of Jesus. That's why our mission statement is we exist to make disciples that shape our communities with the love of Jesus, because that's the vision of the Bible, to create a family that's so incredibly invested in the love of the Father toward them that they change the world around them through that love. So I'm done, but I got four application points real quick. (laughs) Sight. All right. Um, First one is this, that if you find yourself in these relational fractures, I want you to do a couple of things. First... I want you to repent repent to God as a father for how you've hurt others. And what that means is repent to him in a way that acknowledges his pain is not just, that his pain is for others. I think so often when we hurt others, we repent to God as though he's just angry at us. He's just mad or disappointed in you. And first off, that's not true. Like, he's not disappointed in you. Bro, you've been doing that your whole life. All right? So, rather... What we're seeing here is that God wants you to be a part of a family that comes to the Father and experiences the love of God for others and for you to remind yourself of how deeply God loves you. So repent to God for what you've done in relationships, for your relational responsibility as a father uh, for how you've hurt others. The second one is this, to repent to others as a brother or sister, accountable to a family and father as much as to them. Right, So when you say you're sorry to somebody, recognize it's not just you being like, hey, my bad I did you like that, Joe. I do nothing to Joe, but for example, and recognize that your accountability isn't just to the person that you're talking to. You're accountable to something greater than you. To be honest, you're responsible to something greater than them. You're responsible to a father and a family that holds each other accountable for the sake of the family itself, for the sake of the world around us. The third thing is this. Repent in a way that sets boundaries to help you change. Sorry, for us in our culture, is a lot of word, not a lot of action. If some of y'all have been in like cycles of relationships that hurt you, you know that feeling. Where someone says sorry, but they don't ever set boundaries. Saying sorry and setting boundaries are two different things. You can say you're sorry all you like, but if you do the same thing the next day, your sorry was empty. It's the same thing that God talked about a couple weeks ago, last week, when he said, man, your sacrifice to me, it's pointless, it's worthless. I wish y'all would board up the temple because your sacrifices, they mean nothing, right? That, that's kind of what happens when we just say sorry. Rather, repent in a way that sets boundaries. And, and really, you say like, hey, I, this is the st- these are the steps I'm going to take to not do this thing anymore. These are the steps I'm going to take to not hurt you in this way anymore. These are the steps I'm going to take to not hurt this person or this part of our lives anymore, right? If you need help with that, talk to somebody. Like I said, you have a spiritual family where I promise you the people that call refuge home, at least the people that have talked to me, they're not gonna cast judgment on you. And if they do, holler at your boy, all right? I handle that business. Um, The last thing is this. Receive mercy and grace from God as a faithful and loving father. That when you're taking this amount of responsibility, let's be honest, it's scary. And it hurts. It makes you feel like you're insecure because the question is whether if you take responsibility, the people that love you and the people around you are going to leave you. If whether when you take responsibility, as much as we're talking about taking responsibility here, the end result is that you have no one left. But that's why the vision of God's family is so particularly beautiful because the more responsibility you take, the deeper and more honest you repent, the more you see the mercy and grace of a loving and faithful father who will never leave you and whose, whose anger is only exceeded by his love, grace, and mercy to you. And so when you take all that responsibility, end it by receiving grace and mercy from a faithful and loving father, that he ain't holding that against you, and he separated you from... Those actions in, in the Bible it says, as far as the east is from the west, and that's meant to be inf- infinitely in their imagery. So, today, if this is you, all right, if you found yourself either hurt by someone or if you found yourself having hurt someone, and let's be real, you should find yourself in both those things. I want you to take some time today to one, receive the mercy and grace and refuge of God, that he values your pain, that he sees you and he's motivated by justice, that he does not want you neglected, he does not want you hurt. He is there to be your strong person and he is there to be your security. Our church is called a Refuge Community Church because the Psalms say that God is a very present refuge in times of need and that's who he promises to be to every person that's hurting. On the other hand, if you probably speaking to the same person here, have also been someone that hurts others. Wrestle with that in your heart today. Take take responsibility for it. And as you take responsibility for it, perceive the mercy and grace of God in full. That grace covers in full, right, a forgiveness that completely forgives his children. Let's celebrate that today let's just take a couple of minutes to do that before we take communion. And so what I would love to do is simply give you some space to pray, to respond to God. If you would like to pray with someone, uh, I'm going to be right over there. Can Mike and Lex be right over there too? If y'all need prayer, y'all can pray with me too. We'll just make it a little circle. Um, and we'll be over there to pray with you if you need prayer. But let's just take some time and, and just spend some time with the Lord in that way experiencing his grace and mercy and his love for us.